Welcome to The District, a podcast about politics and culture from the spectator world. I'm your host, Teresa Moll, and I'm joined today by Simon Hankinson, a senior research fellow in the Border Security and Immigration Center at the Heritage Foundation. Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So we're here to talk today about something pretty disturbing. You had an article published by the Heritage Foundation. It's time for corporate media to tell the truth about America's crime problem. And this is really startling. I mean, we're used to the mainstream media lying to us about all sorts of things. Um, But what you outline in this article is really, really scary. You talk about, um, you give several examples of recent high-profile, violent, terrible crimes that have taken place. And they make the news, but as you point out, there's a lot of details about these criminals that are conveniently left out. Notably that in one instance, the criminal was an illegal immigrant who was kicked out of the country and came back. And in another instance, the offender, I think, committed, it was his 41st arrest for one. That's really hard to believe, but it's true. But we wouldn't know that by reading these stories. So how does the media get away with withholding this relevant information? I guess if you're the unsuspecting public, you don't know any better. You wouldn't know to ask the question, but you did and you revealed this to us. So how do they get away with it? And what are the consequences of them basically pulling the wool over our eyes and just (laughs) leaving stuff out? Well, it's a great question. I think those of us that I'm, I'm 53. So I, I started reading The Spectator magazine in like 1986, and I read The Times and The Post and all the national dailies. And I've seen in 30 years the way that they have changed from largely objective reporting, I think, maybe slightly left of center, slightly right on others. Uh, and then you had opinion on the opinion page to what they call now looking at stories through a lens. And if you look at The Washington Post, and you look at their uh, descriptions of, of writers, they'll sometimes say, you know, X looks at stories through the lens of social justice or race or gender or whatever. And they really feel like it's their duty to use their jobs as journalists, not to just report the facts and let us make up our mind, but to spin it so that they push their ideological message. I think the the biggest example of this was when there was a New York Times kind of revolt in the newsroom and they told their editor, I think it was Dean Bachet at the time, we need to look at every story through the lens of social justice and critical race theory and so on. So I think when they look at stories of crime, they're concerned not just to report that person A did something to person B and then give you what descriptive material you need to be able to understand the story. They want to underplay under, uh, certain factors about the, the perpetrator usually uh, so that they don't make it look as if certain people commit more crimes than others. And uh, to me as a consumer, that's irrelevant. That's up to me to make up my decision. You know, if I was... Uh, making immigration policy. And for example, we had guest workers coming from blue land and red land to fictitious countries. And it turned out that the uh, the rate of, of criminal activity in blue land turned out to be 35 times the rate of that from red land. Well, that might influence the way that I decided who was going to get to come into the country on a work visa um, and so on. Uh, in a similar way, I think people uh, who vote in, in big cities need to be able to understand who is committing the crime and where it's happening and I do think it is relevant if that crime is being committed by people who could have been prevented from being in the country, but for the policies of the administration. Mm-hmm. That's something I found really, really shocking. You point out that 
America's biggest cities are being victimized by repeat offenders on an unimaginable scale. Truly unimaginable. You say that in New York City, leftist bail reform and see no evil progressive prosecutors have allowed a mere 10 offenders to commit over 485 crimes since 2020. That really is unimaginable to me. But that's not something obviously we're hearing in the mainstream media. You say that these crimes shouldn't have happened because the perpetrators shouldn't have been there. And their immigration status also indicates their flight risk. So obviously these crimes are happening happening over and over again. Why are these perpetrators allowed on, out on the streets? You talk about bail reform, but what are some of the other aspects aspects specifically about the system that you see as being the most broken parts that are allowing these criminals to continually break the law and just get put back out on the street to commit more crimes? Well, you've got two kind of parallel problems. The one is the immigration-related crime. And there, the problem is that the federal government is not doing its job. It's not stopping people like Gershon Fuentes the, the Guatemalan illegal alien who, who raped that poor girl in uh, Ohio. And then the case became uh, not celebrated, but it became a media issue because she went to Indiana for an abortion. Or the uh, the, the two guys who, who killed 50 people in a trailer by locking them in there without air conditioning. Those were people that possibly, had there been Border Patrol patrolling the border and not in processing centers, you know, stamping people into the country, they might have been prevented from coming in because we do have a system when we catch someone who commits a crime uh, and they do their sentence, we're, we're supposed to deport them. The uh, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, is supposed to send them back to their home country where they can be a danger to them and not to us, right? We People don't have a right to live in the United States no matter what they do. If they commit serious crimes, they lose that right. And then you have the parallel problem, which is what they call the, the rogue prosecutors. Uh, you've got one in San Francisco who was just uh, voted out of office amazingly by the, the voters of San Francisco. There's Alvin Bragg in New York. There's Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, George Gascon in Los Angeles. All these big cities have prosecutors who are ideologically opposed to keeping people in jail. It's the last thing they want to do. And so what they do is they they tend to, to give the, the victim sort of second place and the perpetrator gets all of their concern. They, and, and, you know, I, I, I agree with the principle that you shouldn't put uh, innocent people in jail. However, if you have someone who's committed 40 violent crimes, as the guy who pushed that poor woman onto the subway uh, or the, in, in New York City, what we call the metro here in D.C., and that, you probably wonder, well, which one? Because that's happened so many times this year. That's a crime that's happened you know, at least three or four times that I can think of. But the, the famous one that made the news, the guy had already been arrested 40 times. The 40th time was for sucker punching a poor woman on the street. He just walked up to her and hit her. Now, I would suspect that this gentleman has some serious mental health issues and that that is one reason why he committed 40 crimes. But he was let out. He was not kept in jail between the time of him being arrested for suspicion of committing a crime and his trial. He, he was either released on no cash bail or released on a, a you know, negligible amount of bail so that he could offend again. And, you know, look, there was a, a law in, in California, I think it was a three strikes you're out, the idea being to keep dangerous recidivist criminals behind bars. And I can see how that could have been misapplied in certain cases. If you commit, you know, one mildly serious felony and then, you know, two of, of shoplifting bubblegum, I don't know, maybe that's not a person you want to use that law on. But they went so far away from that in the wake of the 2020 
you know, spring post George Floyd, I don't know what to call it, national uprising of consciousness or whatever. Uh, they went so far away from that that they decided, well, not three strikes, you're out. No strike, no amount of strikes, you're out. In New York City, there's a guy who had 87 total arrests, another with 33. The, the, the biggest guy, a guy named Harold Gooding, this is in the New York Post, arre- was arrested 101 times, 88 since bail reform was enacted. He robbed the same Target store 20 times. Now, if you're shopping in Target, you're eventually going to pay for that in the form of higher prices. And as a citizen wandering the streets, you probably think that maybe not three strikes you're out. Okay, five. But I think, you know, somewhere between three and, and 101, there might be a limit of sanity. And these prosecutors just simply aren't respecting it. <laughs> you would think so. Do you get the impression that crime is getting more violent, more intense, I would say. I don't know. There was just a report of an instance in Georgia where a teenage boy and his teenage girlfriend were on a date. She went to the bathroom, came outside, and he was bleeding. He had been shot, and he died of his wounds um, in the parking lot of a mall. You know, just innocent stuff like that. It seems like it's happening all the time. Those examples you just used of a woman randomly being sucker punched in the head. We see, we saw someone beheaded in a Silicon Valley just randomly in the broad daylight. It seems like at least the reporting of these instances, even though they leave out details, it seems like there's a lot more of them and a lot more of them in recent years and even recent months. Um, is this something that you you sense or that you have knowledge that is the, the intensity or the, the violence of these crimes are increasing? Um, and if so, is that, do you have a reason for that? Um, are criminals getting more dangerous? Are there influences, drugs, things like the BLM, BML, BLM movement and other woke ideologies that kind of empower people to feel as if they are justified in acting out in violent ways? What do you sense as far as the crime in the U.S. goes? Well, you know, there, there's an old uh, saying, I think it was uh, Benjamin Disraeli, a British prime minister, said that there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. You can make statistics tell a lot of different stories. Um, but just to take the example of uh, Philadelphia, that's about half an hour away from where I went to high school. They had 3,300 shootings this year, 95% higher than last year. So that's a tangible example. Burglaries up 50%, violent crime up 60%. There were 187 children shot in the city of Philadelphia. It's not that big a city in the last year. So that's one place where violent crime is definitely much higher. It's also fair to say that, say, New York City, back when I was young, had a higher murder rate than it has now. I think it was like almost 2,000, and now it's below 1,000. But, you know, (laughs) I don't think we want to hold up the late 70s in New York as kind of an example of of where we want to be. We, We got things under control. The city was known to be fairly safe and a place that families could go and, and enjoy a weekend and go to Times Square. Um, and the last thing we want to do is go back to the days of Escape from New York, you know, that Kurt Russell movie from the 80s. It, it's partly perception that there is some truth to the fact that the, the, the prevalence of social media means we all see videos of uh, you know people getting beaten up on, on subways and people getting assaulted on the street. And it's horrible. You can't help but see it because it's right in your feed. And you might you, you might exaggerate how often it happens, but I think statistically crime is on the way up in most place, most cities in the U.S. Having said that, I'm, I'm reading a, a, a great book by Wilfred Riley called Hate Crime Hoax, and there's another one I just finished um, by Rafael Mangual, and they point out that most of the crime in the U.S. happens in 
very defined areas. You know, if you dropped out of a plane, uh, you, you could land in 99% of the United States in a place where there's almost no crime. And that 1% of the time, you would land in a place where there's nothing but crime. Uh, so it really depends on where you live. Um, and then the impact of it, it is determined by where you live. So one of the saddest things about the whole BLM um, uh, movement to me is that what, what started, I think, with, with good motives of people who wanted to hold police accountable, people who wanted to have everybody treated with dignity and respect, even if they had committed a crime or were suspected of crimes, it, it devolved into um, police backing off from doing their jobs because they felt like they weren't being respected or they were afraid of, of being pilloried if they made a mistake. And it, it led a lot of cops to quit their jobs. A lot of big cities are having a hard time replacing uh, police who left their jobs. And so the bottom line is more people in, in inner cities who tend to be blacker and browner than the, the uh, rural areas are the victims of crime. And if you look at all of the statistics, you will see that time and again, the people most hurt by the police pulling back and uh, defunding the police and bail reform and all of these progressive ideas that sound fantastic when you live in, in uh, you know, Park Slope, Brooklyn, or in a, in a gated community in California, the impact is felt by the poorest and most vulnerable people. Going back to your point about corporate media hiding these facts that do not agree with their narrative and what looks nice for their view of the world um, about these repeat offenders and about illegal immigrants um, committing crimes. What can citizens do when they rely on the media for this information? Obviously, the answer is that you avoid news sources that don't report on who choose not to report on relevant information about crime, but um, that might be a little tricky to do. Like, how do you know that you're missing something if it's not included in an article? <laughs> how do you find that? Is the FBI at fault at all as well? Do they are can their statistics be trusted if you or or police forces um, if you want to kind of go directly to the source and inform yourself if you're not trusting of the media? What would you advise someone who actually wants to know what's going on to do? Well, it, it's a tough problem because. I I'm probably not alone in that I respect the legacy media almost out of habit. I don't want to believe that the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, and, uh, and a lot of the traditional media aren't doing their jobs. But I think if you look at the numbers, you step back a bit, and you consult some other sources, that's a conclusion you, you have to reach. So one thing you can do is, is go to places like uh, you know the Daily Wire, the Daily Signal, uh, the alternative media, the, the Washington Free Beacon, that while they do have a, an ideological position, for sure, and they're not hiding it, they tend to cover stories that the mainstream media simply will not, and they will provide the facts, such as someone's immigration status, that you won't find um, in, in traditional media. And these days, there's, there's a lot of websites. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts now because I find that the news that I get there is just more reputable and accurate than what I'll get by watching um, mainstream media. I guess I want to be t a tiny bit optimistic. I know CNN has just uh, apparently made an executive decision that they want to go back to being a news network instead of an opinion blog, um, and they've made some personnel changes. And who knows, maybe in a few years, um, they'll discover that there is an audience out there for real news and that they'll get viewers back 
if they have a reputation for covering stories, maybe in a boring 24-hour repetitive fashion like they did 20 years ago, but covering stories in a neutral and professional way. Um, I, I think, honestly, some outlets are probably too far gone, uh, but I personally read you know, 10, 15 different websites or news outlets every day, not cover to cover, but I, I check a lot of different places to try to triangulate and make sure that I'm getting a reasonable perspective on the issues. Do you think these um, soft prosecutors, the people who favor bail reform, the people who favor open borders and um, all of these things that have caused this, this crime sort of crisis to soar, um, do you think their policies will come back to bite them, so to speak? I know even though the mainstream media may not be reporting on the details that lead one to believe that these policies are not working, that the American people are smarter than that and can figure out that, oh, we keep having this crime problem, it's getting worse. What's the cause of that? Oh, it turns out defunding the police is not making me safer. It turns out that letting anybody into this country you know, just just openly is not making me safer. It's actually doing the opposite. So despite the media's uh, failure to report on these essential details and these stories, I think people can figure out whenever crimes keep happening, it's obvious it's right there in front of their face, especially in those places that you mentioned. So are you, again, optimistic that there is kind of a silver lining despite despite the horrible crime that something good could come of it in that these prosecutors, though they're being protected by the media now, won't always won't always be that way. Well, there's that old saying: a conservative is a liberal who got mugged. Um, and I, I do think when crime comes home to roost, uh, you know, people do realize uh, that that it's real and it just doesn't happen to other people. That's why uh, Governor DeSantis, I think, brilliantly flew 50 migrants to Martha's Vineyard to show the people with the signs on their lawn saying no human being is illegal. That no, of course they're not illegal, but they're not legally in your yard. And if you don't like it, you're going to have to enforce the law. We did see, as I said before, San Francisco ejected Chesa Budin, who's the ultimate woke or rogue prosecutor, because that most leftist city probably in the country finally decided it had had enough with people taking dumps on the street um, and taking over sidewalks and uh, ruining local businesses and targeting you know, minorities and, and people who couldn't defend themselves, elderly people, uh, for violence. You know, I, if you look at American history, there's definitely a, a sort of pendulum swing in things like law and order, where you have a, a softening up, you know, crime rates go down, so people think, oh, everything's safe, we can take it easy on criminals. Uh, the jails lighten up, uh, and then all of a sudden crime goes get back up again. And then you elect tough prosecutors and tough mayors, and things get tight, and People are happy, and then they think, well, things are good again. So this is a certain evolutionary cycle, and I think we are on the, the bottom end of that cycle where I hope people will use their vote to, to elect mayors and prosecutors who are – tough on crime is such a slogan – who prosecute crime. That's all. We just want people to take it seriously and to prosecute crime. Um, if I was looking at these statistics in, in the book I cited earlier. Uh, the, the people who commit the most serious crimes – are a very small subset, and unfortunately, uh, they tend to be recidivist, and they tend to have uh, antisocial disorders that make them highly likely to commit crime again and also influence people around them. So if those people are behind bars, they are not going to commit crimes. So I guess in answer to your question, I'm not super optimistic, but I do believe that there's a common sense in the American voter 
that will allow them to use their vote this time around to, to make a difference on the local and national level. Thank you for listening to this episode of The District. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator World is the U.S. edition of the world's oldest magazine. To read more content on similar topics, visit spectatorworld.com.